I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, a conversation with legal scholar, law professor, and author, Mira Dev. Stay tuned. Now, in the U.S. in 2022, February was Black History Month and March is Women's History Month. And I know that the concept of awareness is meant to pervade a personal culture at all times, but these time frames serve as a great reminder of our past informing our present, and both the questions and the promise that are at the intersections of race and gender and equity and justice. Now, I, like many others, want to examine this more deeply, and it helps to gather knowledge and perspective from those around you who may certainly have a similar or shared background and who are studying this very carefully. So I sat out a friend from my childhood, legal scholar and author Mira Dev. Mira graduated from Cal, then Michigan Law, and then got her sociology PhD from UCLA. She's now a professor at Southwestern Law School and the director of the Indiana University Law School Survey of Student Engagement. Her experience and research on institutional diversity, affirmative action, and racial representation are truly noteworthy, and her book, Unequal Profession, Race and Gender in Legal Academia, examines these intersections closely. Mira previously practiced law with the ACLU and in 2020 was elected to the American Law Institute. She's written and spoken and taught extensively on a wide range of social justice, civil rights, and cultural issues. Now, Mira and I grew up as family friends, and I'm guessing this may be similar to most who are listening out there, but when we were at social or cultural gatherings and chatting during those days, race and gender inequities were not hot topics of conversation. But perhaps those were truly some missed opportunities. So as she joined me for a conversation, I was so curious about her journey and some of her formative experiences that have shaped her thinking. My mother's grandparents were freedom fighters. They were people who opposed the British in the struggle for Indian independence, and they were also followers of Gandhi. My mom's parents were actually married in his ashram. And Mm -hmm. as children, my siblings and I really grew up hearing all of these stories. Um, We learned that my mother's parents garlanded each other as is tradition in Hindu wedding ceremonies using a hand-loomed thread that Gandhi had given them. And then instead of a honeymoon, they were sent off to clean latrines, which was sort of, you know, acting on that service of humanity that was part of um, the, the daily teachings and the daily living in the ashram. And so in addition, I was told really early on that I should be a lawyer. It was sort of just assumed <laughs> that that would be my job. Right. Apparently, that was an acceptable job for someone who argued as much as I did as a child. <laughs> Um, And of course, I had no idea what that meant, right? I didn't know what it meant to be a lawyer in the way that many people are lawyers here in the US. I just assumed that what that meant was that I was supposed to follow in the footsteps of Gandhi, who was a lawyer, of my freedom-fighting great-grandfather, who was a lawyer with Gandhi, who was jailed for these political beliefs. So that's what I sort of strove to do, be that combination of activist, advocate, um, attorney. You know from our time at Berkeley that California's Prop 187 and Prop 209 were passed. Um, I was still in college when that happened. And so I joined you know, many thousands of others in protesting 
um, the passage of those two laws. My first year in law school, so just a couple years later, a white woman who'd been denied admission to the University of Michigan, where I was in school, sued the law school, arguing that affirmative action was the reason that she had been denied. So in other words, admitting me and other students of color is why she, a white woman, was not admitted to the law school. And so I became a party to the case. I joined the lawsuit as an intervening defendant. Um, and really, our, you know, our argument was uh, something that actually I teach now in my own civil procedure course with law students, that nobody represented my interest. And so um, there was an opening for me and others to join the lawsuit and argue our own points um, before the court. And, you know, those were things like combining integration with affirmative action or arguing that um, ensuring a diverse group of students was on campus was an issue of equity. It's about justice and fairness and representation, these sort of bigger concepts than what was immediately before the court. Let me, let me ask you a question, though. Before you even got to, to Cal and Go Bears, by the way, do you think that you were even cognizant of issues of fairness and equity and justice beyond the underpinnings and backdrop of your grandparents and great grandparents and, and even saying that, like, hey, you should go into law? You know, were there instances or even thoughts reflecting back now that you're like, oh, yeah, well, that really was an experience that I had or this really was resonating for me, but I may not have even known it. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely was attuned to these issues before I went to college. I think for a lot of students, starting college is where you recognize, oh, there are people who are really different than me and let me learn from them. Or that person has a completely different experience than I even knew you could have. And I, I could learn something from that or maybe share my own experience to help other people understand that we could come at things from different perspectives and not necessarily be right or wrong, but just understand things, you know, from, from our own experiences. And I was really fortunate um, because I went to a high school that was really diverse as well. I mean, we had not just students from different backgrounds, but pretty high percentages of students who were white, who were black, who were Latino, who were Asian American and um, Filipino, especially. And so there was you know, a lot of encouragement to celebrate and recognize diversity. So just as one example, we had um, international ambassadors. I think that's what they were called, like people from different backgrounds instead of a homecoming king and queen no. um, to sort no. of celebrate people from different backgrounds um, instead of just, you know, who's the, the one most popular man and the one most popular woman. Right. And there were certainly, you know, still issues of race and gender. There were still, you know, challenges at my high school, of course. But the Rodney King protests happened when I was in high school as well. And I remember at the time, you know, there was a lot of concern about whether a school that had such a large degree of diversity would erupt in the way that many other schools were um, dealing with challenges, fights among students, things like that. And it really wasn't an explosive issue at my school in the sense that we all recognized the challenges. It didn't feel like students were pitted against each other based on their backgrounds. It was yeah. much more, you know, a collective response, I think, to recognizing what some of the challenges were. And, you know, I, I'm still so grateful that I grew up in an environment that really celebrated that. Honestly, most schools, even today, you know, 30 years later, yeah. don't do that. If anything, they are more, you know, what, what sociologists and people in education call hyper-segregated, right? Where um, there really aren't... Um, 
students from different backgrounds learning from each other on one campus. And, and I'm lucky that I got that really early on. You know, what's funny is I'm thinking back to where you and I probably had our most interactions, which was at family gatherings or cultural gatherings. And now that I reflect back on this, it's very, very unlikely that we were even talking about these things, even though you were going through those. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's totally possible that you were thinking about these things at exactly the same time that I was thinking about these things. But certainly, I don't remember conversations from way back then um, where we talked about anything like this. Yeah. And, and so in that way, were we as a community of color and children of immigrants, in, in some ways, were our experiences important? The fact that you went to a high school that didn't have a, a homecoming king and queen and rather had ambassadors here, that says a lot. Do you think those are conversations that we should have been having back in those days? I think I could have learned a lot from having those conversations with you or thought more about how you know my situation was the same as yours or different from yours. What I'm thinking of is, is that I just don't know if while you were having these terrific aha moments and, and thoughts and reflections on your high school experience, I don't know how much of that same conversation was happening in in the Indian community. And were we talking about like what this meant to us, as opposed to just celebrating the fact that there are other brown Marathi people around that we're hanging out with? Yeah, I mean, I would say that for our parents' generation, mine and yours, and many other immigrant parents, you know, the focus is really just on survival, probably more on assimilation or, you know, at least kind of getting along with people. Yeah. And so it's it's this kind of interesting juxtaposition, right, of me feeling like, oh, I'm supposed to be an activist <laughs> attorney. Yeah. That's what it means to be a lawyer. Um, and yet also feeling like, you know, th there's this expectation to kind of go along with things or, you know, not kind of rock the boat too hard or make mm. a big deal about things. So how do you explain the sort of deep acceleration of discussions, especially in the last several years, about equity and civil rights? And while perhaps being a larger part of the social discussion, it's been magnified for someone like you, this has been something that you've been studying and practicing and in many ways living for so many years. What maybe is behind the acceleration or amplification of this discussion over the last couple of years? There certainly has been uh, an explosion, I think, of people starting to think about or talk about issues of racial justice, of equity and equality, both. Um, and, you know, when the protests surrounding George Floyd's murder started up in May, June of 2020, I was probably getting, you know, a call every week or two to do an event. And during the course of that summer, starting in early May and throughout the summer and longer, I was getting a call roughly every day, mm. not only from law schools, you know, also from universities, from firms, from other organizations. But there was certainly this idea that racial justice was important. And, you know, I'm sort of smiling as I say this, because, of course, for many of us, we've been working, as you mentioned, on issues involving racial equity for decades you know, actually, many people have been working on this for centuries, right? Over time, over generations. Well, and, and what were they asking you to do? What was there a, a specific urgency that they were trying to solve? 
Yeah. So, you know, as a consultant, I do a lot of different things with law schools. Sometimes I come and give, you know, one one hour talk broadly about the book. Sometimes I'll come in and like today I did a I did a consulting event for a law school that's trying to focus more on mentorship and how to improve mentorship for junior scholars at their campus. This past year or two, a lot of schools have been very focused on hiring, on how to make sure they have a diverse pool of candidates for law faculty hiring, uh, which is one of my areas of specialty. Now, um, my concern, of course, is that there's sort of a symbolic progress happening where people are feeling like, oh, we're supposed to talk about this. And so let's talk about it. But I'm, I'm not always confident that every place that invites me to do an event, for example, is fully invested in meaningful change. And so, you know, I'll just mention that for me, I I struggled with that a lot that summer. I didn't want to just do events so that people could point to me and say, you know, here she is. She's going to fix it. Right. We brought her in. So that's all we could do. And so I started telling schools that in order for me to do an event, they would need to send me action items that they were committed to working on for the year. And it would make my job harder because I would have to tailor each presentation to their actual action items. Um, But that made me feel better about feeling like we were working towards progress together, that they had already made a decision about what they wanted to do. And I could partner with them in trying to help them achieve their goals instead of them pointing at me like I was the goal, right? I can't be the solution. I can just help them work towards their solution. What do you say to the person who is either telling you that, well, these strategies are going too far? Or for that matter, they're not going far enough. Yeah, I certainly hear complaints on both of those grounds, right? right? Because change is slow at any institution. And I think for people who are used to doing things a particular way, law tends to be a a very slow changing beast. And so it probably does feel like things are moving quickly for people who are used to doing things the way that they've been doing them and not that interested in making big changes. And then, of course, for people who, as we've talked about, have been working for decades towards these changes, you know, finally, I think for many people, they're feeling like this is our moment. What's interesting is that, and I, my husband actually reminded me, my very first law review article was titled Ebbs and Flows. And it was about the ways in which there's progress followed by backlash. And so you'd think I would have seen this coming. And yet... Um, I was not as attuned to it as I should have been. But, you know, in addition to that progress that we're seeing, you know, those calls every day to try to make change, there's also been significant backlash. And we see that in, you know, the many states and cities that have enacted anti-critical race theory um, laws or, you know, the, the fear that so many people have about learning the history of race and racism in the U.S. So in some ways, sort of a natural ebb and flow process. Um, It is hard to talk to both communities at once, the ones who are like, let's move faster. And the ones who are like, this is too fast. What's helpful for me in those situations um, is that I'm an empiricist. I'm trained as a quantitative and qualitative researcher. And so I have data to back up what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, because I'm trained. All you kids out there, it's it's helpful <laughs> to have a PhD in sociology. Let me tell you, <laughs> it is. I mean, and to to be working in a law school, right? Because then I'm I'm using a different language sometimes than the people who are there. But also, you know, as a qualitative researcher, someone who's trained in interviews and focus groups, 
a lot of my job is about listening and about encouraging people to share their perspectives. So making sure that people are heard, helping people understand that their ideas are valued, helping them feel like I care about what they say, even if we disagree, that can be really useful in getting people on the same page. Even, you know, not to say that we're all going to agree at the end of the day, but it might be easier to get buy-in when people feel like they've had a chance to say what they were thinking or what's really been bothering them or what's on their mind. Your book, Unequal Profession, which for me as a non-lawyer and someone who's not a, a trained legal mind here, I mean, I thought the entire premise with, was was fascinating, but especially as an educator. I mean, I found that really very eye-opening and to some degree affirming of things that have probably been studied and suspected and and now has a lot of data behind it. But if you are sort of chatting with someone who is naive to all of this, how would you describe or outline the concept of race times gender? Yeah. So, you know, I I think people are pretty aware that there are issues of race that impact your experience. And similarly, that gender has an effect. And so the idea of race times gender bias, for example, is really about thinking about how the two of these concepts, these identity characteristics, race and gender, have compound effects on inequities or on your experiences overall. So you don't face challenges or biases or discrimination just because you're a woman or just because you're a person of color. You might um, face racial discrimination as well as gender discrimination and have those kind of added together, right? Race Mm. plus gender. But it's not just additive. That's what the X is for, right? Race times gender is to show that there are unique challenges that might affect a woman of color, for example, based on that exact combination of her identity, both as a woman and as a person of color. And some of those will be different than what other women who are not women of color, so they might be different than what white women experience. There might be some commonalities based on gender, absolutely, and I've certainly found those in my research. And similarly, women of color and men of color might have similarities based on race. And yet there are things that are unique to the experiences of women of color um, that I write about in the book specifically. And, you know, while the book is focused on legal academia, it's a a book that um, shares interview and survey data that I collected from almost 100 law professors around the United States. There are a lot of ways in which I think people can relate to the narratives that I share in the book. Even, you know, among our parents' generation, for example, you know, right. I, I did a book event with um, sort of the larger community um, in Southern California. And in talking with them, one of the examples that I gave is how maybe they felt like people didn't take them seriously early on in their careers because they spoke with an accent yeah. or no one had ever heard of the college that they had gone to, even though perhaps it is a world famous university. Mm-hmm but they might have endured some of those slights. And that really resonated with so many of them. A lot of people, you know, shared their own stories with me, as you were saying, things that we did not talk about in our childhood. Was that a surprise to you at all? I mean, probably inherently, it may not have been, but maybe the magnitude. I mean, it was certainly a very welcome surprise. You know, when I wrote the book, I expected that 
hopefully, you know, some law libraries would <laughs> keep it on the shelves. And right. I thought, you know, the, the 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 heart of the book, the real focus of the book is on women of color. Yeah. They're the core sample. You know, while I do talk to men of color and white women and white men as research subjects, um, the focus is really on women of color. And there aren't that many of them in legal academia, but I yeah. certainly thought, okay, well, this is going to be a group that maybe gets excited about the book that recognizes the ways in which their experiences are validated and, you know, where they can sort of thumb through some best practices or solutions. And so it certainly has been a very welcome surprise that it has gone far beyond the, the few copies that I thought I might sell um, and that it has really resonated with people from so many different backgrounds. You mentioned this community as an aggregate, but I want to quickly pivot to, to something that talks about disaggregation and specificity. And you wrote, I thought was a fantastic piece, a law review piece that was quoted in the New York Times on why the term BIPOC fails. And, and putting this in the framework of the South Asian community, South Asian American community even, why is this term a misstep? Or, or why should there be more disaggregation? And separation, even in the backdrop of creating coalitions and political power and, you know, more clout? Yeah. So I, I think it's important to me that people of color recognize our commonalities. There are a lot of things that we share and a lot of ways in which we can build solidarity and build strength relying on one another. So, you know, here in the U.S., we use this term South Asian. In India, of course, I don't know if anybody thinks of themselves that way or thinks yeah. of themselves as being in kinship with Pakistanis or Bangladeshis or Sri Lankans. But like you said, there are strategic and political reasons why these groups band together here in the U.S., you know, whether it's to push for citizenship for non-whites, as, you know, Bhagat Singh Thind or Takao Ozawa did literally a century ago, arguing right. that they should be citizens too, or even today, groups like Stop AAPI hate, right, which is to raise awareness and push back against anti-Asian hate crimes. And so there certainly are mutual benefits to banding together. I appreciate opportunities to do that in my personal life and my professional life. Um, and I prefer the term people of color to do that with. Yeah. The term BIPOC, you know, there, there are a few different concerns that I have um, with the term itself. You know, the, the term itself references Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. So that's what, you know, the letters of the, of the term yeah. stand for. You know, my, my one big concern is just that I, I don't know many Black or Indigenous people. I don't personally know any Black or Indigenous people who use that term talking about themselves, right? And so I'm always first trying to be informed by the community. What does the community say sure, about sure. who they are and how they want to be understood? And, you know, this, again, is focused on how academics or advocates or allies talk about communities. If, if an individual wants to refer to herself as BIPOC, I'm never going to interrupt that, right? That's right. Any, however you want to talk about yourself is um, completely up to you. My, my biggest concerns, I think, about the BIPOC term this idea that, you know, if I use the word, you're going to know that that means that I, you know, care about this group. And what I want to know is what you're doing to promote equity, not the word you use because you think it means that you are on the right side, right? It's, it's because it's 
becoming somewhat of a popular term, although I think, you know, perhaps we're seeing some of that, you know, we saw some of the progress and we might be seeing some of the backlash against it too. So when I first, you know, thought about this essay and it was published almost a year ago, I I was sort of like, wow, what kind of, you know, hate mail am I going to get for for, for this piece? Whereas I think now there are probably, you know, more people who are kind of skeptical of it. My other big concern about it is just that while it foregrounds indigenous as sort of the second letter of the term, it's really, again, doing so primarily in name only. I don't see a lot of focus on Native Americans, even among people who are using the BIPOC term. So, you know, you might see something that says uh, a school is trying to hire more BIPOC faculty. And in my mind, I think, what do you mean more BIPOC faculty? Do you have any Indigenous faculty already? You're you're using the term to make it seem like you want more Indigenous, but actually you still have zero Native American faculty. Maybe you should say that. Maybe you should say we don't have any Native American faculty and we would like to solve that problem. We clearly have not done this well. How can we improve so that we finally get some indigenous professors to join us? That to me seems much more genuine. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that goes to your question about disaggregating. I would strongly prefer that we talk about whatever groups we're talking about. If you're talking about black and indigenous groups, then just say black and indigenous. We don't need to add the POC to the end of that. Right. Right. Whereas, you know, when when you're talking about, you know, family separation at the border, for example, don't use BIPOC, right? We're we're not, it doesn't even reference the Latino groups who are most personally affected by family separation. Sure. So instead, right, why would we foreground Black and Indigenous in that context? And so the context itself, I think, is what's really important as we think through the correct terms to use in any given situation. You know, thinking of this as individuals is one thing. Thinking of it as you and I both are as parents is perhaps a, a different lens. And, you know, and then in the natural evolution as parents and thinking about uh, risk and, and what are we, what do we stand for? What kinds of ideas that we want to uh, have our children experience um, in, in the world and, and how their independence and, and their own thoughts about race and equity and gender change and and evolve through time. How has this work in some ways for you, being a a scholar of this, how has this maybe in in any way changed or affected your parenting? Yeah, my my kids are tweens. And so they're just sort of starting to assert their independence. Um, And so it's been exciting and challenging to see that happen it's of course been made significantly harder due to the pandemic. You know, I think back to what I was doing when I was in fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. Well, my kids will have actually been from third to seventh between the two of them throughout the course of the pandemic. You know, that is a time where you can sort of ride bikes with your friend by yourself and there are no adults around, right? Or like get dropped off to the mall, but then you have like two hours with no adult supervision. Um, And we're not doing most of those things now. You know, they they haven't felt safe to do um, because we're not really gathering with other people in general. Does that restrict in some ways their ability to even discover and think about conversations about equity and justice? Well, I think it makes it harder for them to have that time on their own to do it. But, you know, I'll say that these issues come up 
even if you're not looking for them, we certainly have had really interesting and thoughtful and insightful conversations in our own household about how to navigate that, how to be a leader, how to be a friend, including, you know, when your own friend says something that's not appropriate, what to say to your friend about helping them understand that what they're saying might not be fair or just or nice. So, you know, in spite of, for the most part, keeping apart, I think issues of identity and equity and justice, they crowd in, right? They're here no matter what we do. And so it is imperative, I think, for us to confront them, for us to think about them. And I know that it can be uncomfortable. I mean, Trust me, as someone who studies this as a researcher and who you know has worked both at the ACLU's National Legal Department and at a statewide nonprofit focused on women, I'm happy to talk about these issues, right? right? But you know, your tweens don't always want to talk to you about it. And you know, in a lot of ways, they are way ahead of where we were. I mean, we started this conversation saying you and I didn't talk about this when we were growing up. And yet kids now they're talking about this constantly with each other, right? And so On the one hand, you know, I think from what I heard from last night's conversation, you know, the 10 year old was kind of like, this is boring, right? She already knows. She already knows what the right thing to do is. She doesn't know anyone who's saying the wrong thing. So she's not worried about having to step in and redirect. But I want them to be prepared. I know that they are going to encounter people who are pushing against who they are, who are pushing against who their friends are, or who just, you know, a random stranger might be. And I still want them to know that it's their responsibility to do the right thing in that moment. Well, um, Mira, you're helping us all to be more prepared and I'm really grateful for all the work that you're doing. So, so thrilled that you were able to join us. Thank you so much for, for coming on today. Thank you too. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Thanks so much, Mira. So here's some hero worship. Congratulations and hoping for a speedy Supreme Court confirmation for the Honorable Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Till next time, I'm Abhaydarnika. Ruckus Avenue Radio.